want to make two announcements uh, quickly that I was just handed as we begin. Um, we want to remember Pam Fath in our prayers. She was admitted to Blunt Memorial Hospital today with congestive heart failure. Uh, so keep Pam and Ray in your prayers at this time. And then also uh, Teresa McClanahan, she's doing well. Um, uh, she will, um, I believe she will leave the hospital this week, uh, but, or she will be in the hospital this week, uh, but ask for no visitors yet. But uh, remember Teresa in your prayers as well. We are tonight going to look at another passage in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 20. This will probably be our last lesson in Acts for a little while. Uh, I'm excited next week on Sunday morning, we're going to have uh, Bledi, our, our missionary from Tirana, Albania. He'll be speaking on Sunday morning, so I'm excited to hear what message he will bring. And uh, so I want to encourage everyone to, to show up for that and uh, to support him and uh, and uh, uh, get to know uh, him in, in Mona a little bit. Um, we uh, will be in Acts chapter 21, or sorry, Acts chapter 20 in our lesson tonight. And we're going to be looking at a lesson that is kind of unique in the book of Acts. There's a bunch of speeches in Acts, and we've talked about a lot of them. There's like Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter uh, 3, and Acts chapter 7, and Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 13, and Acts chapter uh, 17 is where he's in Athens. This here in Acts chapter 20, and then you get Acts chapter 23, and 24, and 25, and 26. Like those are to, to uh, the you know, big crowd of Jews at the temple, and then at Fe uh, Festus and Felix and Agrippa. There's all these speeches. But what's different about this one in Acts chapter 20 is this is a speech that is dedicated to or uh, addressed to Christians. Um, you know, most of the preaching that we hear today, most like sermons and, and preaching, is for uh, Christians. Like most of it is what happens in church. But when you read through the Bible, most of the sermons that you read are actually primarily addressed to people who are not followers or are, are not uh, Christians. And so they're going to have sometimes something of a different flavor than what you might expect to people who have already committed themselves to Jesus, uh, sermons that are often evangelistic in nature. Uh, this is one, I don't know if you want to call it a sermon, but it is a speech, uh, and it's addressed to Christians, and it's one of the few times that we get that in the Bible. We know that they did uh, preach to Christians, but you just don't get a lot of examples of that written out. Well, right here, uh, you get one, and, uh, and I think there's a lot that could be learned from it. I think one of the ways that Acts teaches um, is it's telling stories like about the early church, and those stories are informative, and they're valuable, and they are uh, encouraging, and you can see the example of some of the early Christians and their faithfulness, and I think that can become our example of faithfulness as well. But I also think that sometimes they, they give you uh, snapshots of things that the early church did so that later generations of Christians can learn and imitate those things. For example, um, earlier in Acts, when you are in Acts chapter 6, you have this problem of the feeding of the, the, uh, the widows, and it seems that the Hellenistic Jews are being neglected, but the native Jewish widows, they are being fed, and the church realizes that that's not okay, and so they need to come up with a way to, to solve this problem, and so they uh, assign seven people to do it. And what these seven men do is uh, called service. The word that, you, that, that that is, that is the word deacon only as a verb. Uh, that's what the word service means. So the word deacon just means servant. And, uh, and so when you have it as a verb, it's, it's that they are serving. And so, and so uh, they are people who, who served the church uh, in this different way. And it's kind of like you're getting there a glimpse of 
what being a, what being a deacon is all about. You know, the, the later church had deacons, and, and, and so what are they supposed to be like? Well, when you read Acts, you get this picture that there was a need that arose, and, and people needed uh, to be fed, and there was a service that the church needed, and so people who were good, godly men were chosen to do that. And that's kind of like the beginning of what being a deacon in the church is all about. Well, you know, having elders in the church is kind of an interesting thing, um, because if the church is only going, like, when the church first started, I don't know how long they were expecting it to last. It's hard to know. In fact, as you read the Bible, you sometimes get kind of some different, different glimpses of that. Uh, what I mean is some of them might have been expecting Jesus to come back pretty soon. In which case, if you're only going to, you know, if, if you see Jesus go up into the sky and you're thinking he's going to be back next week, you don't really have a huge need for elders. Uh, but if you think the church is going to be around for a while, well, then you need to put things in place for the duration of the life of the church. And that's something where elders and deacons and some of the structure of the church is going to become pretty important. And so that, that begins to develop. Um, but I don't think they had necessarily like elders in the church the first year, you know, it's, that's something that, that came along. Um, and so when you're reading Acts, you start getting, uh, after Paul's first missionary journey, he goes through and he starts establishing elders in some of these cities, but you're not given uh, great descriptions yet about who they were and what they did. In fact, it was probably pretty similar to the fact that uh, you have elders in Judaism. Uh, the elders aren't, an, aren't a new idea. Uh, there were elders in, in Judaism, and, and so maybe some of those types of men who had converted, people who were patriarchs in their family, who uh, were righteous and, and faithful people who had led their children to Jesus and some things like that. You're like, these are the types of people who are going to be great leaders in the church. And so these are the people who become the, the elders. But it's not until some of Paul's very last letters where he actually gives like descriptions of, of uh, you know, men that Timothy should be looking at. You know, these are the types of people who are going to be good elders. And these are the types of people who are going to be good deacons. And so all of that is to say, I think sometimes Acts will give you like a story about deacons and then that becomes a model. If you're going to be a deacon, that becomes a really important story for you. Um, it gives you perhaps a, a, a model of what being an evangelist is like by showing you these depictions of evangelists. And you say, okay, that's, that's something I can do. Um, and I think you're going to get a similar thing when it comes to elders. And I think Acts chapter 20 is one of those passages that gives us a good glimpse at to what leadership in the church is supposed to look like. This is where Paul addresses the elders at the church at Ephesus. And uh, he has been at Ephesus for about three years, and he's, he's left, but he wanted to have another meeting with them. And so as he's journeying around, he ends up coming back, and he has them uh, actually travel from Ephesus to Miletus. And, and so the, the elders actually travel a good little ways, like over 30, 40 miles to get to where Paul is. Uh, so they could have kind of this, this farewell, and they could spend some time together one last time. And it's during that that Paul gives them a speech. And as I said, it's the only speech in Acts that is directed to people who are already Christians, and it's directed to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Um, I want to uh, kind of read through it and make some points before, before we draw the lesson to a close. But uh, I think there's some, there's some value that comes at, at looking at Paul's model for service and leadership in the church. And those aren't, those are pretty much the same thing, service and leadership in the church. Uh, if you understand leadership in the church, service is a really good description of it. Uh, and that's what I think Paul is going to, going to emphasize throughout. So when you look at uh, verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, it says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to, uh, to him the elders of the church. 
And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know. And so he's actually going to start off by telling them uh, something that they're already familiar with. One of the ways you can kind of outline this lesson is it's really, it's not the normal style of a sermon or or of a a speech in Acts. It's not uh, calling people to become Christians. It's more of a look at their relationship together, what they know about Paul, and then it's a look to the future, a future of what they have in store for them, a future of what Paul uh, is hoping, I think, for himself, or I don't know if hoping, but what he's thinking about for himself, uh, and what the church is going to be facing, along with some admonitions along the way uh, to help the elders face the future. But he says in verse 18, you yourselves know from the very first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now, so he starts off by saying, you already know um, our relationship, our history together. We, we've been with each other the whole time. And you know, and then he gives this brief description of his work there. And I think uh, it's a beautiful description. Uh, it's a challenging description of what ministry and service in the church is going to look like. I mean, if you're taking on a ministry yourself, if you are a preacher or, or an evangelist, or something, if you are an elder in the church, I think these, this little summation right here is a pretty good de- description of what you're going to be facing. He says in verse 19, serving the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials. Um, a lot of times that's what service in the church looks like. It's serving with humility, with tears, and with trials. Um, there are going to be trials. There are sometimes going to be tears. There's going to be obstacles that need to be overcome. And the only way you will be able to do it is by service with humility. It's like service with humility go hand in hand. Tears and trials go hand in hand. And a lot of times those are a depiction of what, uh, of what leadership in churches looks like. I think especially as you read through Acts, you see that over and over again. You've seen the trials as we've gone through page after page. And we've seen uh, numerous times where, uh, where the key to overcoming is service and humility. And sometimes the, the outcome of that is tears. You know, there's, there's hardship associated with it. But as you continue to see, there's also um, victory. And there's also the overcoming. And there's also a, a lot of the good that goes along with it. But when I look at this passage and I think about elders, I want to, um, I guess I just want to say, I've... I know a lot of people who uh, are in ministry. I know a lot of preachers. A lot of my good friends are preachers and ministers in different ways. And uh, we talk sometimes. And something that I am very, very grateful for, and I think every person in here should be very, very grateful for, is this church has a uniquely excellent eldership. You have an eldership that is full of servants, humble men, who I've seen uh, come to tears and I've seen face trials and yet have faithfully overcome because of the love they have for this church and the love that they have for Christ. And so I, I was reminded of them as I went through this and in a number of ways. I mean, as we go further on, we'll see um, some of the warnings that are given to the elders. And some of the things that are warned about are not major problems here. 
And I think one of the reasons why is because you've had elders who have been serving faithfully and doing their job for a long time so that some of these things that Paul's going to warn about that's going to affect the church at Ephesus has not happened here uh, or is not happening here. And I think the elders have a lot to do with that. So one thing I would encourage every one of you to do is to be very grateful and very thankful for the elders that we have here and also to let them know that from time to time. Uh, it can be a thankless job, but it should not be a thankless job. Uh, so be sure and be thankful uh, that we do have a, a quality eldership here who genuinely loves you and does a good job serving the Lord. But verse 19, uh, or verse 20, uh, Paul, after mentioning his service and humility and tears and trials, mentions that through them all, he was able to do what he set out to do. Verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As he kind of summarizes his ministry, a couple of things there. One is the idea that he will preach the gospel no matter where he is. If he's publicly or if he's privately in someone's house, uh, He's going to teach the gospel wherever he gets an opening. And so we don't have a ton of examples of Paul preaching the gospel privately in houses. We do have that with Peter, like going to Cornelius. And there are times that Paul does enter into households, but sometimes you get these statements like this. Or sometimes you'll get a letter where Paul will mention something, and it will actually give you more information about what he was doing than, than you might get in Acts. So like in Acts, we know he was in Ephesus for three years, we know a couple of things that happened. We know there were some people he met uh, who were baptized with John's baptism. We know there was a riot because people were, were turning from idolatry. And like we know a couple of things that happened in his time in Ephesus. But right here we're getting more in-depth discussion of what his ministry model was like. And the fact that he, uh, did, he taught them everything he thought was needed and profitable for them. Uh, so it wasn't like there were things that he shied away from teaching. He was going to teach whatever he thought was beneficial to that body of uh, Christ, to those people there. He would do that whether he had an opportunity to do so publicly or whether he was in people's houses. He would do that no matter who the audience was in verse 21, whether Jews or Greeks. Uh, he didn't stick with one and neglect the other or anything like that. He taught everyone he could every way he could, everything he could, I think is a good summary of what he's saying right there. Uh, and that's something that, um, that he did faithfully and consistently. And as he says in verse 18, you yourselves know. So it's like the elders have seen him do this. But then verse 22, we kind of get a, a shift because he's been talking about what he had done among them. Now he's going to be talking about what he's going to be facing in the very near future. Um, verse 22 says, and now behold, I am bound by the Spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that the bonds and afflictions await me. Um, and so he's going to be going to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to face hardship there. He says he's bound by the Spirit to do it, that he's going to face hardship, but he doesn't know exactly what that's going to look like. This is actually interesting, and it, really it's something that... Um, that I hadn't noticed before, and uh, just it just kind of, I, I recently saw it. Um, I know that Paul has this journey to Jerusalem right here that he goes through. And then like in chapter 21, uh, he goes to a church and they, they you know, are crying with him on the seashore and they're telling him, 
don't go, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to be, uh, you're going to, to be uh, killed there and then, uh, or, or, or at least uh, persecuted there. And then he ends up moving on a little bit further. He goes to Caesarea and uh, a prophet named Agabus comes and he uh, binds Paul's hands and feet and says, that's what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. It's like he's going there and he knows this persecution is coming. But you have a rather detailed and lengthy description of his journey to Jerusalem and the hardships and the persecution that he's going to face there. Well, this is Acts, and that's happening to Paul. You have a very similar couple of chapters that in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, and he keeps uh, informing people about the troubles and the hardship that he's going to face along the way there. Um, there are some differences that emerge because Jesus actually has a much clearer picture in his head. Paul says in verse 22, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is going to be uh, having this type of conversation. Uh, and in Luke chapter 18 and verse 31, Jesus took, takes the 12 aside and says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. So remember, Luke and Acts should be read together. Uh, and what you're seeing is, so often what Jesus does in, in Luke is modeled by his disciples in Acts. And this is, this is one that I hadn't even thought about before. But it's, it's, it's an interesting one. And they both, you know, they use a lot of the same language. I'm going to Jerusalem. I've been doing my ministry. But now I'm going there and I'm going to face hardship. Uh, Paul doesn't exactly know what he's going to face. But Jesus, he says in verse 31, uh, behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And, the third, uh, and then the third day he will rise again. And then notice verse 34 says, but the disciples understood none of these things. Um, they, they had a very different image of what would happen with Jesus. And so even when he tells them, it just doesn't make any sense to them. They don't see how that's going to happen to the Son of Man because that's not what they think happens to the Son of Man. But anyway, what we're seeing is that Paul is now modeling what Jesus went through. A lengthy trip to Jerusalem knowing that his fate once he gets there is going to be, uh, is going to be undesirable. Uh, Jesus is going to be crucified. Paul is going to be arrested. But here uh, in Acts chapter 20, Paul continues. Um, he says that in verse 24, the reason he can do this is because he's developed an attitude about his life and about what truly matters. He says in verse 24, but I, I do not consider my life of anything, of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish the course of the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So what he's saying is basically, I've had to develop a mindset that says that the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of God's grace being shed on Jew and Gentile and on all mankind, that is of more value to me, that is dearer to me than even my own life. If I held my life as the first and most important thing, I probably wouldn't be making this trip to Jerusalem. But I'm going to go there because spreading the good news of the gospel of the grace of God is by far the most important thing and the thing that's most valuable and dear to me. And so as long as Paul has that mindset, he can, he can live his life exactly as he sees fit. It's like if, if, Paul's, if Paul loved the gospel, but he loved 
his own life and comfort and self more, then he would constantly have this internal battle going on of wanting to do this, but not willing to because, because he has to put himself first. And I think Paul is one of those people, and it's, it's incredible to read, especially in his letters. Sometimes he grapples with this. In, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, it's like Paul's in prison as he writes Philippians, and he thinks he might be killed there, but he's pretty sure he's going to be able to get out. And it's like he's you see the internal thoughts as he pours out the pages uh, in this letter to, to the church at Philippi. He talks about how to live as Christ, but to die is gain. So it's like, even if they kill me, my life right now isn't the most important thing because I'll have gain after that. I'll be able to go and be with the Lord Jesus, which is far better. But to live... That's all about Christ, too, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, to live is, is more profitable even for the church because then I can keep going out spreading the message. And so Paul has, like, I can live and tell people about Christ and serve the church. Uh, and he says he's actually hard-pressed between the two, having the desire on the one hand to go be with Jesus because— it's kind of nice to be with Jesus. That's, that's a great idea. Uh, but on the other hand, he loves the church and he can stay on the church. And it's like, no matter what happens to him, he can find peace in that. And that's one of the major messages of the book of, of Philippians. That's why he says, Re rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Like he can rejoice in all things. At the end of the book, he says that he's learned to be content in whatever situation he finds himself in. If they're going to kill him, hey, you know what? His life isn't the most important thing to him. Jesus is, and so he'll get to go be with the Lord, and he's okay with that. But if he doesn't end up being killed and he's able to go out, well, he gets to go keep serving the church, and I think Paul's okay with that too. And so Paul has developed this mindset, and, and you can see it right here, where he says that he has a course ahead of him, and he would not be able to run that course if the most important thing was his own life in comfort and in getting uh, getting uh, you know an extra couple of years or something like that. But if the most important thing is serving Jesus and bringing the good news of the gospel, then Paul can do that uh, and he could do it uh, wherever he is called to go, whether it's Asia Minor or whether it's Jerusalem, no matter who he's facing or what hardships lay before him. So then in verse 25, he says, Now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Uh, notice verse 27 is quite similar to uh, verse 20. Verse 20 says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 27, you find out what's profitable. Uh, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. It's like everything that was in God's plans, that's what's profitable for you. So that's what I, I didn't hold back from preaching, but I preached that. He says because of that, he, in verse 26, is innocent of the blood of all men. All right, so that, I think, is an echo back to uh, an earlier passage from the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel is chosen to be a prophet of God, and he has a very difficult message, but it's a message that he is bound by God that he must proclaim. Uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3, and you'll get this, this idea that I think Paul is, is relying upon as he makes this point. In Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17, The Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, 
warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, uh, and you do not warn him or speak uh, out of the uh, out to warn the wicked from the wicked way that he will live, that wicked man shall die uh, um, in his iniquity, and his blood I will require at your hand. Yet. If you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wicked ways or from the, uh, his wicked, wickedness or his wicked ways, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. All right, so here's, here's what he's saying. If there's a wicked person and I tell you, go give them the message that they're about to be punished, that they will surely die. If you don't deliver that message and that guy continues in his wickedness and then dies, his blood's on your head, Ezekiel. Because you were supposed to go and warn him. And you know what might have happened? He might have stopped his wickedness if you had done that. And so you have an obligation as a prophet to preach and tell people the word and the will of God. He says, if I give you that message and you go and you deliver it, and he says, you know, I don't care about you. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he continues in his wickedness and he dies. Well, then you're fine. His blood isn't on your head. But if you refuse to tell them my purposes, then the blood is on you. And uh, he gives another uh, example of that in verse 20, kind of the reverse. He says, Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous um, should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. And so if, if there's a righteous guy and he's doing a bunch of good things, but then he turns away from the Lord, Ezekiel, go warn him. If you refuse to tell him the message that I'm giving to you and he goes off and he dies, then again, you're, you're culpable. You're responsible for that. So I think Paul is saying in his preaching of the gospel, he tries to take it with that level of seriousness. Uh, when he considers what he's going to preach to the church, he's not going to, if he sees danger or false doctrine or heresy or dangerous ideas spreading in the church, if he says nothing then he's no longer innocent of the blood of all men. Uh, then he is, is uh, complicit with the sins of the church. But if he speaks the full counsel of God, if he's able to speak the whole purpose of God, then he's innocent of the blood of men, no matter what they end up doing with that message. And, and I think that's why Paul is saying that, that's his ministry model. Uh, he's going to teach the truth. He's going to teach the truth to anyone who will listen. He will teach anywhere he can. He'll teach all of the truth. And uh, he, because of that, can't be found on the day of judgment and say, hey, you neglected these people because you were prejudiced, or you neglected this message because you were scared, or you neglected to preach here because it was inconvenient, or, or any of those things. Paul can say with, with sincerity that I have accomplished my ministry in the course that God has given me. Now, in verse 28 is where he turns from primarily addressing himself and what he has done, and what lies before him on his journey to Jerusalem, and he begins to address what the elders have before them. And he gives them some warnings for what they're going to face. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And I think, by the way, that's, that's really important. Uh, no matter who you are, being aware and cautious in those two areas, for yourself and for others. You know, Paul makes a similar point uh, when he talks about 
he buffets his body daily or he tries to control his body and disciplines himself daily because he doesn't want to spend his whole life serving others and to have neglected himself and then he ends up losing the race he ends up being disqualified so he has to work on his own godliness and spiritual well-being while also serving others and that's what these elders are told to do be on guard for yourselves Because you can, without trying, end up slipping into some dangerous territory that you never thought you'd be in. So be on guard for yourself, but also for the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, That's, that's, I think, uh, a beautiful reminder of who is ultimately behind the eldership. He says the Holy Spirit is the one who has made you overseers. And so that puts some responsibility on what the elders are doing for the church. And what they are supposed to do is shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, That is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is uh, the fact that the elders were chosen by the Holy Spirit to shepherd or to pastor the, the flock. And that's quite a responsibility. But notice also that concluding phrase, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, Notice it says the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is one of those places in Acts where uh, it sure seems to me like Jesus is being called God here. Uh, Jesus is the one who purchased the church with his own blood, and he is described as the, the church of God, which he purchased. And so it seems like he's saying, It's God's church, and he purchased the church with his own blood. Uh, And so you're getting here a a high view of Jesus and his identity uh, with God, his his relationship with God, and his uh, unity with God. But then verse 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering night and day uh, that I did not cease to admonish you with tears. And there you see the tears again. But notice what he's telling these elders is to be aware, to be cautious, because basically there are teachings that can come into the church. And that if you're not careful, they could end up destroying the flock. Wolves can come in. If you're supposed to shepherd and keep the flock safe, those teachers will be like wolves who get in there and they can destroy. Uh, I think this, this reminds me of a couple of things. One, it reminds you that actually doctrine does matter and the purity of the teaching of the church does matter. Uh, I think sometimes we can get so focused on uh, the, the mission of the church in some ways, which is essential and that's you know, key to Acts, uh, that we think, well, pretty much the only thing that matters is what you're, you know, whether or not what you're doing is good for the outside world or bad, or we become very outward focused, which again, that's a good thing to be outward focused. I don't think that's a problem. Uh, But if you do that so much so that you forget that actually teaching the truth matters quite a bit, and that by getting some of your theology wrong and getting your doctrine wrong, you could you could lead to the death of the church itself. Like you can lead to spiritual death inside the church if the teaching isn't the will of God. So teaching actually matters. Um, I think sometimes we, we want to think gospel matters and doctrine is, is of secondary or lesser or un, you know, not that important. But there's actually a lot of times a lot of uh, uh, 
of uh, unity between the idea of doctrine and gospel. I mean, the gospel is a doctrine. Doctrine just means the teaching of the church. And so the church needs to be very aware of its teaching. It needs to make sure that the teaching is pure, is biblical, and is according to the will of God and the word of God. And I think that's one of the responsibilities that elders have, is to make sure that that does not, that, that teachings don't get pulled into, uh, into false and dangerous directions. One thing that's interesting is to look at the church at Ephesus throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, for example, Timothy is sent to Ephesus. And one of the reasons that he is sent to Ephesus, when you read the book of 1 Timothy, it says, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange teachings, nor pay attention to myths or endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The idea is, he says, I'm going to Macedonia, you stay at Ephesus, and you get people to stop teaching nonsense. Uh, make sure that they do not teach strange or false teachings, and they give rise to, to mere speculations, and, and uh, people speaking whatever they want to speak, rather than actually what matters to God. The, the law of God's household is, is what that means. And so he's saying, make sure that the teaching there is right. You actually get a couple of, of these teachers mentioned uh, later on in, in 1 Timothy. You get a Hymenaeus and Alexander. We're told that they have made shipwreck of their faith. It's like through their teaching, they've actually destroyed themselves. And later on in, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, when you get to chapter 5, Timothy is given instructions on how to go about rebuking an elder. That's a really interesting thing to have put in there, especially when you consider that Paul's warning to the church at Ephesus was that from among your own people, like from among the eldership, wolves will arise and, and will destroy the sheep. And so I'm wondering if maybe that type of thing is happening while Timothy's there. Certainly el the elders are allowing it. And so that's one of the reasons Timothy might need to be installing new elders and why he's given these, these instructions for uh, how to find men that will be good elders. He's also supposed to put an end to a lot of false teachings. He's also supposed to perhaps occasionally rebuke an elder. Uh, and so all of this is, is, I think, showing you that there's some tough things taking place at the church at Ephesus. And when 2 Timothy is written, you get the impression that things haven't improved very much. Some of those false teachers are still mentioned. And instead of uh, Timothy having put a stop to it, Paul is encouraging Timothy to stop being so timid and to not be ashamed to teach the truth and not to be ashamed of, of the gospel. And so it seems like Timothy has been getting worn out in Ephesus by this job that he has. And it seems like something that's it's an extremely difficult ministry task. And Paul warned them about it early on. But what's also incredible is that when you get to uh, the book of Revelation, which is uh, written, it's one, probably one of the last books, if not the last book uh, of the New Testament written, the church at Ephesus is addressed again, and we are told the thing that they do really well is that they basically stand for the truth and they hate false teaching. They hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which is a group teaching false things, and it's like they have, they have rejected the falsehood, but then we come to find out that in the process they've lost their first love. And it's like, I feel like you see that back and forth happen a lot uh, as culture and as churches change. It's difficult to, to find the proper balance where it's like, 
not everything you do needs to be anti the false teachers and the heretics, but also you need to be careful that you don't end up uh, being taken over. And so I think Ephesus is an interesting case study in how all of this happens. And I think those are the very things that Paul is trying to warn them and prepare them for uh, as, uh, as he is speaking with them. One other thing as he begins to bring the lesson to a close is he not only warns about the dangers of false teaching, but then... He says in verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, who is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who were sanctified. So he, he gives them this beautiful word of, of commendation uh, to God and his word of grace that can build them up. But then his conclusion, it kind of seems out of left field to me. It's like, I think that would have been the perfect place to end in my, like, if I were giving this speech, but I'm not. And so, uh, Paul, he ends right there. It's like, he can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Then he gives just a final little conclusion about um, not doing ministry for money, basically, or for the, that being your main focus. He says in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know, and he uses that phrase again, that these hands ministered to my needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's how he ends it. And when I think about why add that last thing there about, you know, not craving money from people and working with your own hands and uh, that, that giving is better than receiving. And by the way, that's one of those things also. We have, you know, the Gospels written uh, and none of them record those words of Jesus that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We only get that from, from Paul right here to this message to the elders. Although I think that fits in very closely to Jesus's whole idea that he also teaches on his way to Jerusalem where he says things like uh, the son of man didn't come to be uh, to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many the idea is he's willing to give everything rather than just taking service and, and taking from others Jesus gives everything and that's what his ministry is about and that's that's what Paul's concluding message to this eldership is and I think that perhaps the reason he wants to end that way is if you're warning about false teaching, one of the things that very often can lead to that is a desire for wealth, a desire for money, a desire for popularity, and, and the things that go along with that. And, and so I think a lot of times those can be very connected ideas. A desire to uh, benefit financially from the church can lead to you just saying whatever people want to hear. And uh, that's not what Paul's ministry was about, and he makes that clear. He didn't just preach what people wanted to hear. Uh, he preached the whole counsel of God, so he's innocent of the blood of all men. He also wasn't after their money. Uh, sometimes those two things can go hand in hand. If you get so focused on wealth, you'll end up uh, you'll end up letting that be what guides your ministry and your service in the church. And whether you're an elder or a preacher or whoever you may be, make sure that that's not what takes over your mindset. Uh, those are the words that Paul concludes this message on. And then all together, they pray. He lays hands on them. Um, they kneel together. They weep. They embrace. They kiss. Because these are Christians who genuinely and truly love each other. And that's why we brought up this passage this morning. Uh, 
because I think this passage shows the value of actually being together. These elders traveled a good long way to be with Paul for this final message. And I think that uh, in that you're seeing some of the, what Paul considers to be the most important things to remember as an elder in, in the service of the church. These are the types of things you should take with you, uh, as, you uh, as you serve and as you live faithfully in the church. And along that, you see this, this love that they have for one another, uh, which I think will uh, help carry them through as well. Um, but that's, uh, that's Acts chapter 20. That's Paul's message to the, the uh, Ephesian elders. I think there's a lot of value in there. Uh, if there's anyone here tonight who would like to become a Christian or would like the prayers of the church, uh, we would love for you to let that be known. You can uh, let us know. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.